Chapter 5, Part 1 of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kimberly Dion. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Chapter 5, Part 1 The Sovereignty of God in Reprobation. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Romans 11.22 In the last chapter, when treating of the sovereignty of God the Father in salvation, we examined seven passages which represent him as making a choice from among the children of men, and predestinating certain ones to be conformed to the image of his Son the thoughtful reader will naturally ask and what of those who were not ordained to eternal life the answer which is usually returned to this question even by those who profess to believe what the scriptures teach concerning god's sovereignty is that god passes by the non-elect leaves them alone to go on their own way and in the end cast them into the lake of fire because they refused his way and rejected the Savior of his providing. But this is only a part of the truth. The other part, that which is most offensive to the carnal mind, is either ignored or denied. In view of the awful solemnity of the subject here before us, in view of the fact that today almost all, even those who profess to be Calvinists, reject and repudiate this doctrine, and in view of the fact that this is one of the points in our book which is likely to raise the most controversy, we feel that an extended inquiry into this aspect of God's truth is demanded. That this branch of the subject of God's sovereignty is profoundly mysterious, we freely allow, yet that is no reason why we should reject it. The trouble is that, nowadays, there are so many who receive the testimony of God only so far as they can satisfactorily account for all the reasons and grounds of His conduct, which means they will accept nothing but that which can be measured in the petty scales of their own limited capacities. Stating it in its baldest form, the point now to be considered is, has God foreordained certain ones to damnation? That many will be eternally damned is clear from Scripture, that each one will be judged according to his works and reap as he has sown, and that in consequence his damnation is just, Romans 3.8, is equally sure, and that God decreed that the non-elect should choose the course they follow we now undertake to prove. From what has been before us in the previous chapter concerning the election of some to salvation, it would unavoidably follow, even if Scripture had been silent upon it, that there must be a rejection of others. Every choice evidently and necessarily implies a refusal, for where there is no leaving out, there can be no choice. If there be some, whom God has elected unto salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. There must be others who are not elected unto salvation. 
if there are some that the father gave to christ john six thirty seven there must be others whom he did not give unto christ if there be some whose names are written in the lamb's book of life revelation twenty one twenty seven there must be others whose names are not written there that this is the case we shall fully prove below now all will acknowledge that the from the foundation of the world god certainly foreknew and foresaw who would and who would not receive christ as their saviour therefore in giving being and birth to those he knew would reject christ he necessarily created them unto damnation all that can be said in reply to this is no while god did foreknow these would reject christ yet he did not decree that they should but this is a begging of the real question at issue god had a definite reason why he created men a specific purpose why he created this and that individual and in view of the eternal destination of his creatures he purposed either that this one should spend eternity in heaven or that this one should spend eternity in the lake of fire if then he foresaw that in creating a certain person that that person would despise and reject the saviour yet knowing this beforehand he nevertheless brought that person into existence then it is clear he designed and ordained that that person should be eternally lost again faith is god's gift and the purpose to give it only to some involves the purpose not to give it to others without faith there is no salvation he that believeth not shall be damned hence if there were some of adam's descendants to whom he purposed not to give faith it must be because he ordained that they should be damned not only is there no escape from these conclusions but history confirms them before the divine incarnation for almost two thousand years the vast majority of mankind were left destitute of even the external means of grace being favored with no preaching of god's word and with no written revelation of his will for many long centuries israel was the only nation to whom the deity vouchsafed any special discovery of himself who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways acts fourteen sixteen you only israel have i known of all the families of the earth amos three two consequently as all other nations were deprived of the preaching of god's word they were strangers to the faith that cometh thereby romans ten seventeen these nations were not only ignorant of god himself but of the way to please him of the true manner of acceptance with him and the means of arriving at the everlasting enjoyment of him now if god had willed their salvation would he not have vouchsafed them the means of salvation would he not have given them all things necessary to that end but it is an undeniable matter of fact that he did not 
if then deity can consistently with his justice mercy and benevolence deny to some the means of grace and shut them up in gross darkness and unbelief because of the sins of their forefathers generations before why should it be deemed incompatible with his perfections to exclude some persons many from grace itself and from that eternal life which is connected with it seeing that he is lord and sovereign disposer both of the end to which the means lead and the means which lead to that end coming down to our own day and to those in our own country leaving out the almost innumerable crowds of unevangelized heathen is it not evident that there are many living in lands where the gospel is preached lands which are full of churches who die strangers to god and his holiness true the means of grace were close to their hand but many of them knew it not thousands are born into homes where they are taught from infancy to regard all christians as hypocrites and preachers as arch humbugs others are instructed from the cradle in roman catholicism and are trained to regard evangelical christianity as deadly heresy and the bible as a book highly dangerous for them to read others reared in christian science families know no more of the true gospel of christ than do the unevangelized heathen the great majority of these die in utter ignorance of the way of peace now are we not obliged to conclude that it was not god's will to communicate grace to them had his will been otherwise would he not have actually communicated his grace to them if then it was the will of god in time to refuse to them his grace it must have been his will from all eternity since his will is as himself the same yesterday and today and forever let it not be forgotten that god's providences are but the manifestations of his decrees what god does in time is only what he purposed in eternity his own will being the alone cause of all his acts and works therefore from his actually leaving some men in final impenitency and unbelief we assuredly gather it was his everlasting determination so to do and consequently that he reprobated some from before the foundation of the world in the westminster confession it is said god from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably foreordain whatsoever comes to pass the late mr f w grant a most careful and cautious student and writer commenting on these words said it is perfectly divinely true that god hath ordained for his own glory whatsoever comes to pass now if these statements are true is not the doctrine of reprobation established by them what in human history is the one thing which does come to pass every day what but that men and women die 
pass out of this world into a hopeless eternity an eternity of suffering and woe if then god has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass then he must have decreed that vast numbers of human beings should pass out of this world unsaved to suffer eternally in the lake of fire admitting the general premise is not the specific conclusion inevitable in reply to the preceding paragraphs the reader may say all this is simply reasoning logical no doubt but yet mere inferences very well we will now point out that in addition to the above conclusions there are many passages in holy writ which are most clear and definite in their teaching on this solemn subject passages which are too plain to be misunderstood and too strong to be evaded the marvel is that so many good men have denied their undeniable affirmations joshua made war a long time with all those kings there was not a city that made peace with the children of israel save the hivites the inhabitants of gibeon all other they took in battle for it was of the lord to harden their hearts that they should come against israel in battle that he might destroy them utterly and that they might have no favor but that he might destroy them as the lord commanded moses joshua eleven eighteen through twenty what could be plainer than this here was a large number of canaanites whose hearts the lord hardened whom he had purposed to utterly destroy to whom he showed no favor granted that they were wicked immoral idolatrous were they any worse than the immoral idolatrous cannibals of the south sea islands and many other places to whom god gave the gospel through john g peyton assuredly not then why did not jehovah command israel to teach the canaanites his laws and instruct them concerning sacrifices to the true god plainly because he had marked them out for destruction and if so that from all eternity the lord hath made all things for himself yea even the wicked for the day of evil proverbs sixteen four that the lord made all perhaps every reader of this book will allow that he made all for himself is not so widely believed that god made us not for our own sakes but for himself not for our own happiness but for his glory is nevertheless repeatedly affirmed in scripture revelation four eleven but proverbs sixteen four goes even further it expressly declares that the lord made the wicked for the day of evil that was his design in giving them being but why does not romans nine seventeen tell us for the scripture saith unto pharaoh even for this same purpose have i raised thee up that i might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth god has made the wicked that at the end he may demonstrate his power demonstrate it by showing what an easy matter it is for him to subdue the stoutest rebel and to overthrow his mightiest enemy and then i will profess unto them i never knew you 
depart from me ye that work iniquity matthew seven twenty three in the previous chapter it has been shown that the words know and foreknowledge when applied to god in scriptures have reference not simply to his prescience i e his bare knowledge beforehand but to his knowledge of approbation when god said to israel you only have i known of all the families of the earth amos three two it is evident that he meant you only had i any favorable regard to when we read in romans eleven two god hath not cast away his people israel which he foreknew it is obvious that what is signified is god has not finally rejected that the people whom he has chosen as the objects of his love deuteronomy seven eight in the same way and it is the only possible way are we to understand matthew seven twenty three in the day of judgment the lord will say unto many i never knew you note it is more than simply i know you not his solemn declaration will be i never knew you you were never the objects of my approbation contrast this with i know love my sheep and i am known loved of mine john ten fourteen the sheep his elect the few he does know but the reprobate the non-elect the many he knows not no not even before the foundation of the world did he know them he never knew them in romans nine the doctrine of god's sovereignty in its application to both the elect and the reprobate is treated of at length a detailed exposition of this important chapter would be beyond our present scope all that we can essay is to dwell upon the part of it which most clearly bears upon the aspect of the subject which we are now considering verse seventeen for the scripture saith unto pharaoh even for this same purpose have i raised thee up that i might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth these words refer us back to verses thirteen and fourteen in verse thirteen god's love to jacob and his hatred to esau are declared in verse fourteen it is asked is there unrighteousness with god and here in verse seventeen the apostle continues his reply to the objection we cannot do better now then quote from calvin's comments upon this verse there are here two things to be considered the predestination of pharaoh to ruin which is to be referred to the past and yet hidden counsel of god and then the design of this which was to make known the name of god as many interpreters striving to modify this passage pervert it we must observe that for the word i have raised thee up or stirred up in the hebrew is i have appointed by which it appears that god designing to show that the contumacy of pharaoh would not prevent him to deliver his people not only affirms that his fury had been foreseen by him 
and that he had prepared means for restraining it, but that he had also thus designedly ordained it, and indeed for this end, that he might exhibit a more illustrious evidence of his own power. It will be observed that Calvin gives us the force of the Hebrew word, which Paul renders, For this cause have I raised thee up, I have appointed, as this is the word on which the doctrine and argument of the verse turns we would further point out that in making this quotation from exodus nine sixteen the apostle significantly departs from the septuagint the version then in common use and from which he most frequently quotes and substitutes a clause for the first that is given by the septuagint instead of on this account thou hast been preserved he gives for this very end have i raised thee up but we must now consider in more detail the case of pharaoh which sums up in concrete example the great controversy between man and his maker for now i will stretch out my hand that i may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth and in every deed for this cause have i raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth exodus nine fifteen and sixteen upon these words we offer the following comments first we know from exodus fourteen and fifteen that pharaoh was cut off that he was cut off by god that he was cut off in the very midst of his wickedness that he was cut off not by sickness nor by the infirmities which are incident to old age nor by what men term an accident but cut off by the immediate hand of god in judgment second it is clear that god raised up pharaoh for this very end to cut him off which in the language of the new testament means destroyed god never does anything without a previous design in giving him being in preserving him through infancy and childhood in raising him to the throne of egypt god had one view in mind that such was god's purpose is clear from his words to moses before he went down to egypt to demand of pharaoh that jehovah's people should be allowed to go a three days journey into the wilderness to worship him and the lord said unto moses when thou goest to return into egypt see that thou do all these wonders before pharaoh which i have put in thine hand but i will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go exodus four twenty one but not only so god's design and purpose was declared long before this four hundred years previously god had said to abraham know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years and also that nation whom they shall serve will i judge genesis fifteen thirteen and fourteen from these words it is evident a nation and its king being looked at as one in the old testament that god's purpose was formed long before he gave pharaoh being third 
an examination of God's dealings with Pharaoh makes it clear that Egypt's king was indeed a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. Placed on Egypt's throne, with the reins of government in his hands, he sat as head of the nation which occupied the first rank among the peoples of the world. There was no other monarch on earth able to control or dictate to Pharaoh. To such a dizzy height did God raise this reprobate, and such a course was a natural and necessary step to prepare him for his final fate. For it is a divine axiom that pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Further, and this is deeply important to note and highly significant, God removed from Pharaoh the one outward restraint which was calculated to act as a check upon him. The bestowing upon Pharaoh of the unlimited powers of a king was setting him above all legal influence and control. But besides this, God removed Moses from his presence and kingdom. Had Moses, who not only was skilled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but also had been reared in Pharaoh's household, been suffered to remain in close proximity to the throne, there can be no doubt but that his example and influence had been a powerful check upon the king's wickedness and tyranny. This, though not the only cause, was plainly one reason why God sent Moses into Midian, for it was during his absence that Egypt's inhumane king framed his most cruel edicts. God designed, by removing this restraint, to give Pharaoh full opportunity to fill up the full measure of his sins and ripen himself for his fully deserved but predestined ruin. Fourth, God hardened his heart as he declared he would. Exodus 4.21 This is in full accord with the declarations of Holy Scripture. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 Like all other kings, Pharaoh's heart was in the hand of the Lord, and God had both the right and the power to turn it whithersoever he pleased, and it pleased him to turn it against all good. God determined to hinder Pharaoh from granting his request through Moses to let Israel go until he had fully prepared him for his final overthrow. And, because nothing short of this would fully fit him, God hardened his heart. Finally, it is worthy of careful consideration to note how the vindication of God in his dealings with Pharaoh has been fully attested. Most remarkable it is to discover that we have Pharaoh's own testimony in favor of God and against himself. In Exodus 9.15 and 16, we learn how God had told Pharaoh for what purpose he had raised him up. And, in verse 27 of the same chapter, we are told that Pharaoh said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Mark that this was said by Pharaoh 
after he knew that God had raised him up in order to cut him off, after his severe judgments had been sent upon him, after he had hardened his own heart. By this time Pharaoh was fairly ripened for judgment, and fully prepared to decide whether God had injured him, or whether he had sought to injure God, and he fully acknowledged that he had sinned, and that God was righteous. Again, we have the witness of Moses, who was fully acquainted with God's conduct toward Pharaoh. He had heard at the beginning what was God's design in connection with Pharaoh. He had witnessed God's dealings with him. He had observed his long sufferance toward this vessel of wrath fitted to destruction, and at last he had beheld him cut off in divine judgment at the Red Sea. How then was Moses impressed? Does he raise the cry of injustice? Does he dare to charge God with unrighteousness? Far from it. Instead, he says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15.11 Was Moses moved by a vindictive spirit as he saw Israel's archenemy cut off by the waters of the Red Sea? Surely not. But to remove forever all doubt upon this score, it remains to be pointed out how that saints in heaven, after they have witnessed the sore judgments of God, join in singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Revelation 15.3 here, then, is the climax and the full and final vindication of God's dealings with Pharaoh. Saints in heaven join in singing the song of Moses, in which the servant of God celebrated Jehovah's praise in overthrowing Pharaoh and his hosts, declaring that in so acting God was not unrighteous, but just and true. We must believe, therefore, that the judge of all the earth did right in creating and destroying this vessel of wrath, Pharaoh. The case of Pharaoh establishes the principle and illustrates the doctrine of reprobation. If God actually reprobated Pharaoh, we may justly conclude that he reprobates all others whom he did not predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. This inference the Apostle Paul manifestly draws from the fate of Pharaoh. For in Romans 9, after referring to God's purpose in raising up Pharaoh, he continues, Therefore, the case of Pharaoh is introduced to prove the doctrine of reprobation as the counterpart of the doctrine of election. In conclusion, we would say that in forming Pharaoh, God displayed neither justice nor injustice, but only his bare sovereignty. As the potter is sovereign in forming vessels, so God is sovereign in forming moral agents. Verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. The therefore 
announces the general conclusion which the apostle draws from all he had said in the three preceding verses in denying that god was unrighteous in loving jacob and hating esau and specifically it applies the principle exemplified in god's dealings with pharaoh it traces everything back to the sovereign will of the creator he loves one and hates another he exercises mercy toward some and hardens others without reference to anything save his own sovereign will that which is most repulsive to the carnal mind in the above verse is the reference to hardening whom he will he hardeneth and it is just here that so many commentators and expositors have adulterated the truth the most common view is that the apostle is speaking of nothing more than judicial hardening i e a forsaking by god because these subjects of his displeasure had first rejected his truth and forsaken him those who contend for this interpretation appeal to such scriptures as roman one nineteen through twenty six god gave them up that is see context those who knew god yet glorified him not as god verse twenty one appeal is also made to second thessalonians two ten through twelve but it is to be noted that the word harden does not occur in either of these passages but further we submit that romans nine eighteen has no reference whatever to judicial hardening the apostle is not there speaking of those who had already turned their back on god's truth but instead he is dealing with god's sovereignty god's sovereignty as seen not only in showing mercy to whom he wills but also in hardening whom he pleases the exact words are whom he will not all who have rejected his truth he hardeneth and this coming immediately after the mention of pharaoh clearly fixes their meaning the case of pharaoh is plain enough though man by his glosses has done his best to hide the truth verse eighteen therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth this affirmation of god's sovereign hardening of sinners hearts in contradistinction from judicial hardening is not alone mark the language of john twelve thirty seven through forty but though he had done so many miracles before them yet they believed not on him that the saying of esaias isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake lord who hath believed our report and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Why? Because that Esaias said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Why? Because they had refused to believe Christ? This is the popular belief, but mark the answer of Scripture, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted and i should heal them now reader 
it is just a question as to whether or not you will believe what god has revealed in his word it is not a matter of prolonged searching or profound study but a childlike spirit which is needed in order to understand this doctrine verse nineteen thou wilt say then unto me why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will is not this the very objection which is urged today the force of the apostles questions here seem to be this since everything is dependent on god's will which is irreversible and since this will of god according to which he can do everything as sovereign since he can have mercy on whom he wills to have mercy and can refuse mercy and inflict punishment on whom he chooses to do so why does he not will to have mercy on all so as to make them obedient and thus put finding of fault out of court now it should be particularly noted that the apostle does not repudiate the ground on which the objection rests he does not say god does not find fault nor does he say men may resist his will furthermore he does not explain away the objection by saying you have altogether misapprehended my meaning when i said whom he will he treats kindly and whom he wills he treats severely but he says first this is an objection you have no right to make and then this is an objection you have no reason to make dr brown the objection was utterly inadmissible for it was a replying against god it was to complain about argue against what god had done verse nineteen thou wilt say then unto me why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will the language which the apostle here puts into the mouth of the objector is so plain and pointed that misunderstanding ought to be impossible why doth he yet find fault now reader what can these words mean formulate your own reply before considering ours can the force of the apostle's question be any other than this if it is true that god has mercy on whom he wills and also hardens whom he wills then what becomes of human responsibility in such a case men are nothing better than puppets and if this be true then it would be unjust for god to find fault with his helpless creatures mark the word then thou wilt say then unto me he states the false inference or conclusion which the objector draws from what the apostle had been saying and mark my reader the apostle readily saw the doctrine he had formulated would raise this very objection and unless what we have written throughout this book provokes in some at least all whose carnal minds are not subdued by divine grace the same objection then it must be either because we have not presented the doctrine which is set forth in romans nine or else because human nature has changed since the apostles day 
Consider now the remainder of the verse 19. The Apostle repeats the same objection in a slightly different form, repeats it so that this meaning may not be misunderstood, namely, for who hath resisted his will? It is clear then that the subject under immediate discussion relates to God's will, i.e., his sovereign ways, which confirms what we have said above upon verses 17 and 18 where we contended that it is not judicial hardening which is in view, that is, hardening because of previous rejection of the truth, but sovereign hardening, that is, the hardening of a fallen and sinful creature for no other reason than that which inheres in the sovereign will of God. And hence the question, Who hath resisted his will? What, then, does the Apostle say in reply to these objections? End of chapter 5, part 1